Book of James is where we will be this morning. We are beginning a series in the book of James. I appreciate uh, Daryl for uh, filling in last week while I was sick. Um, it's good. It's good to know that there is there is someone ready and willing to to take the mantle when needed. So I appreciate I appreciate your faithfulness and your study and um, the work that that you do. Um, for those of y'all who don't go to Sunday school, you're really missing out. Because uh, Daryl does a fantastic job. So uh, this morning we're journeying into the book of James. James is written to a group of Jewish Christians. Jews who know Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and they are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. Now, there are Jewish communities all over the place in those days. Some of them dated back centuries, and uh, they are called the diaspora. We don't even, we didn't even have an English word for it. We had to, to take the Greek word and put it into English letters. But the diaspora is this dispersion of Jews all over the place. We looked at a map this morning. And there are Jewish communities far beyond the reach of the Roman Empire. That's how, how much they were dispersed all over. Some places, um, they were very mistreated. They were treated as second-class citizens. In some places, they were, they were persecuted. In other places, they were given a lot of political favor and in many places had their own representatives in government. So, so it varied widely how they were treated. But many of these were Christians who had come to know Christ uh, back in the days of the early church. So, if you'll remember in Pentecost, Peter is preaching the sermon in Acts chapter 2. And what, my, what a, what a change has been wrought in Peter since the days of I don't know the man to declaring in the temple, this Jesus is the Christ. That, that's a, that's quite an amazing change in and of itself. But in that crowd happened to be, oh, a few thousand Jews from all over the world all over the Roman Empire who had come back for the Feast of Pentecost. And here they are hearing the gospel, hearing of this Jesus whom you crucified, Peter said, has now become both Lord and Christ. And many of them submit their hearts to Christ. And in the days to follow, you would think in the days to follow, well, that would just be one big thing and then it would die down. Oh no, it got even bigger in the days to follow because as they were living life, as they were following God, God is building His church and hundreds and thousands are coming to faith in Christ. So much so that even in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira are lying and telling that they have brought all the money from the sale of property when they didn't, they are struck dead in the middle of the service and the church still grows. I tell you, God wants to do something. You just ain't going to stop Him, are you? Many that day in Pentecost come to know Christ and then they go back home. They go back to Alexandria, Egypt where Jews had a pretty good amount of freedom. They go back to Antioch, one of the biggest Jewish settlements of that time. They go back to Rome, where, where the liberties were much more limited, but Jews did have some pull within the ranks of power in Caesar's household. They went back to places in um, modern-day Spain. They went back to places in, in North Africa, in Ethiopia. They went back to places where life was hard. They were sometimes poor and oppressed. Some were chased out because of persecution. 
The Jewish religious leaders are persecuting Christians because they're, in, in their minds, preaching a false doctrine of God. And so they're chased out of town. And as they're expanding, as Paul is chasing down believers, then, then known as Saul, these Christians are going and they're taking Jesus with them. And they're dispersing all over. Some were expelled by Roman officials. Riots would start. Uh, uh, one, one Roman official, uh, I believe it's Suetonius, or uh, it's either Claudius or Suetonius. One is writing a letter to the other, I can't remember. But he says that there's this uproar in Jerusalem about this guy named Crestus, which most think refers to Jesus. Not because Jesus is in the mix, but because they're talking about Jesus. And as a result, a bunch of Jews are expelled from Jerusalem. But it doesn't matter how they left. It doesn't matter why they left so much. The fact is now they're scattered all over the place. And James is sitting in Jerusalem. James, the brother of the Lord, heading up the church. He is sitting here thinking, how can I encourage them to live out their faith? What can I tell them? How can I instruct them so that they see that faith isn't just what you believe in your head, but it's what you're doing with your life? How can I be an encouragement to these scattered believers? So James writes this letter to them. But James doesn't just have something to say to a whole bunch of scattered people 2,000 years ago. You see, this isn't just James writing. Whenever we encounter the Scripture, we are encountering a Scripture that has two authors. There was a person that wrote the words on the page. But there is a God who is inspiring all of it. So I've got to believe that this God who is the mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of everything wants to say something that it matters not just to people thousands of years ago, but it matters to me. So these words of James don't just apply to a bunch of dispersed Jewish Christians in the early days. They apply to us. All right? We got a little sense of who James is writing to. We got a little sense that this is, just wasn't for them, but it's for us too. Let's see what he actually writes. The theme of this letter, the thing that brings all of James together, is this idea of faith. But it's not just faith in the sense of what you think about something. It's not just what you agree with. It's not just the intellectual premises that you feel confident asserting. Faith goes beyond that. Because in a biblical sense, faith is not faith until it is actively obedient to God's commands. Which means, if we are going to have genuine, complete, perfect biblical faith, I mean perfect in the sense of mature, if we're going to have a mature faith, a genuine faith, it must be active in obeying God. Faith cannot be what we think and stop there. It must go into how we behave. That's the point of James's letter. Now, some people think that James and Paul are at odds because Paul is talking about uh, by grace, through faith, not of, not of works, right? And James is saying faith without works is dead. So the two must be at odds, right? No, 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 no. They have the exact same conception of faith. Paul recognizes that faith doesn't come from us. But James recognizes that faith, once it comes to us, must be lived out by us. In other words, a faith that doesn't produce works isn't enough faith. It might be a good start. Everybody has to start somewhere. 
But faith, to be genuine faith, must produce works. Faith is not faith, not in its fullest sense, until it is actively obedient to God's commands. You know, we could put faith in all sorts of things. We could put faith in ourselves. We could put faith in others around us. We could put faith in faith, in positive thinking. But those things aren't sufficient because faith is only as good as what you put into it. So if you are not a Christian this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as the master, as the Lord of your life, then much of what I'm going to say to you just doesn't really apply because the thing that applies to you is you need someone that you can put faith in. You need someone who is capable of handling faith because you're not good enough. I know, I are one. I'm not good enough either. You, you in and of yourself, you can't do it on your own. You fail. We all make mistakes, right? I know I do. I make plenty of them. Don't believe me? Just look at the bulletin for a couple of weeks. I'm guaranteed to do something funny with that. And that's just a piece of paper. We all make mistakes. We all fail. We all fall short. So we need faith that's not in somebody who's imperfect because I will fail you. Because you will fail someone else. We need faith that goes beyond us. Faith in something that will not fail. That is trustworthy to the complete full. We need a faith that goes all the way. And so if you're not a Christian, the only thing I have for you is a call to be reconciled to God. God's speaking to you this morning. If he's he's tugging on the strings of your heart, if he's calling you to follow him, calling you to make him Lord of your life, that's where you start. That's where faith starts. But if you're already a Christian, if you've already responded to that call with a yes, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, if you've already responded with bowing the knee and surrender to him, then this letter is for you because this letter is going to show you how that faith looks in action. It goes back to Jesus' words in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple, y'all. You really love Jesus? Do what he says. What does that look like? Well, we could take our time in chapter 1 and probably take about six months to go through just this chapter because there is so much richness even in chapter 1 of James so much to how faith impacts us. But today, I want to take the 50,000 foot view. I want us to look at the big picture and see just how wide the scope of faith is. Faith is lived out in how we do certain things. Faith is lived out in how we do these certain things. Now, James, uh, I I find 10 basic things in this chapter. You You can probably parse it a little differently, find a couple more. You might combine a couple things together and and make one or two less, but the point is not just how many there are, but how wide of a scope it is. Faith impacts every aspect of our lives. So what does it look like? Well, faith is lived out first in how we respond to trials. Look in verses 2 through 4. Count it all a miserable existence. No, that's not what he says. Count it all as something you got to go through. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. In other words, he draws this out. He says it starts with trials. Trials produce steadfastness. Steadfastness produces perfection, completeness, maturity. Yours might have words like perseverance in this passage. Your, your, the translation you're reading from might say that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It's the same idea. We don't quit. How we respond to trials demonstrates faith. Look in verse 12. He reiterates this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Faith's response to trials is patient endurance that produces steadfastness and results in the rewards of God. Faith is lived out when we endure. Go back a second, James. We don't quit. Because that's not faith. We don't complain. Because that's not faith. We don't become jealous of someone else's better life. Because that's not faith. We live out our faith in the way we endure to the very end. You see, Jesus endured the cross and the grave in order to get to Resurrection Sunday. He went all the way with his obedience. So should we. Faith is lived out in response to trials. Second, faith is lived out in how we ask for wisdom without doubting. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Notice, faith is not lived out by some proud pretense that I could get by, by my, on my own. I could pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Have you ever tried to do that standing up? Yeah, try that once. Let me know how it works. No, faith gives us the humility to admit our deficiencies and to humbly ask God to supply our needs. In fact, especially in the case of wisdom. But faith doesn't cross his fingers, hoping for the best. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Faith isn't just hoping for the best because faith knows that God will provide our needs. And because faith knows that God will provide our needs, we can come to him both humbly recognizing our need and confidently that he will supply. You see, God's a good father. He'll give us what we need. Faith has lived out how we ask for wisdom without doubting. Faith has lived out in how we hold our possessions loosely. Let the lowly brother, verse 19 says, or verse 9, excuse me, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. I love, the, I love the play with words here. Lowly brother being exalted. Because that's exactly what he is. Oh, he may not be exalted yet. You may not see him yet as exalted. Uh, but, but just wait. Wait. Wait until God has finished the work. The rich boast in his humiliation. Well, that's an interesting combination. How do you boast in humiliation? Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now he's not saying that you're good if you're poor and you're bad if you're rich. Many of his readers, though, are poor. 
And because they're poor, they're oppressed. There's no middle class in that day. You're either very rich or you're very poor. Most, most of these Christians are poor. And so he's telling them, don't worry about your poverty. Don't, no, no. Faith, faith doesn't look at the problems of today as though they're permanent. But on the converse, faith also doesn't look at the possessions of the day as if they're permanent either. See, faith recognizes that everything that we have is merely stuff that God has given to us and entrusted to us in order to do His work. And so faith can hold its possessions loosely. It doesn't get white-knuckled trying to hold on to what it has. Faith's lived out in how we hold our possessions loosely. It's also lived out in how we deal with temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You know what the scripture is really saying here? You can't point the finger at God when you're tempted. You see, faith recognizes that it's our sinful nature. It's not God. It's our sinful nature that is the source of temptation. Look in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire has its own life cycle. When it is conceived, give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Some people think there's a little devil on their shoulder egging them on to do everything wrong. No, you're the little devil. It's you. I think it was Spurgeon that said we must be most wary of ourselves because we carry our worst enemies within us. It's you. It's not God. It's not anybody else. It's, It's you. It's your sinful nature. And faith sees the problem isn't God. It's us. Faith has lived out in how we receive God's gifts. God doesn't give temptation, but he does give gifts. Look in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God doesn't give temptations. He gives good gifts. In fact, he gives every good gift. God doesn't give halfway decent gifts. He gives perfect gifts. In fact, he gives every perfect gift. Even the suffering that we're to count as joy. Even that comes from God. Even the poverty that will eventually result in exaltation. Even that comes from God. God, (laughs) we don't look at his gifts to others by faith. We don't look at them with jealousy. We don't covet what they have. That's why why that 10th commandment is don't covet Because biblical faith recognizes that he's given us the gifts he wants us to have and that we use them for his glory. Faith has lived out in how we control our anger. Oh my. Mm -hmm. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Y'all, living our faith ain't always easy. In fact, it's very rarely easy in the natural sense. 
Sometimes it means stopping short of what you feel like doing. Sometimes it's putting a check on your anger. Sometimes it's keeping your mouth shut when you really want to give them a piece of your mind. Our tongue, our anger, so often contradicts faith, it must be controlled. We don't have the luxury of giving them a piece of my mind, telling them what I really think. We live by faith. And faith produces in us the self-control to listen much faster than we talk, to forbear one another who don't always deserve that kindness. I feel like here should be a Selah. Y'all know Selah. And when you're reading in the Psalms, Selah is that word that means pause and reflect. Faith is lived out in how we hear and do God's word. If there is one passage from James that sticks out, it's this one. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and he, at once he forgets what he is like. Notice this is man, not woman. Women don't do that. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Faith is more than what we just agree with, more than the premises we accept. Faith works. We're not like men who look in a mirror and then forget what we see. That's not faith. Faith listens, and then faith follows God's words. Faith is lived out in how we bridle our tongue. Just as we must control our anger, anger we must control the number one way that that anger comes out, our tongues. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, you can, you can hear the chest puff up on this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. That's, I think that's the third time so far this chapter that James has referred to deceiving yourself. Amen. Keep that in mind because that's a key to a lot of this. Faith that just uh, believes with the head but doesn't actually act is deceptive. It passes off as, as a saving faith, but it's really not. It, it, it deceives so the person who does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You may as well be worshiping an idol. Faith is lived out when we become masters of our tongues. See, what goes in is what comes out. And to really control the tongue, you know what you got to do? You got to control what goes into the heart in the first place because the tongue is just the outlet of what's already inside. Faith knows that. Faith controls the tongue by controlling what goes in the heart? Ninth, faith is lived out in how we care for the needy. Simple enough, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This, this, you really want a pure religion? You really want a religion, a, a, a faith that is saving faith and not just that cheap knockoff that's only intellectual assent, that, that, that's just what you believe in your head? You really want a faith that will save you? Care for the needy. This word visit, it's not visit, like go see them every once in a while. It's a continual care. That's real faith. Faith cares for those who are in need. And it doesn't have to be a widow or an orphan, though those are two often neglected groups. It goes far beyond that. 
when you do that kind of care for people who need it and who can't do anything in return for you, that is biblical faith. Last one. Faith is lived out in how we protect our purity. Look at the end of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. I told the boys today, if you get in a pig pen with a pig and you start wrestling around, does the pig get clean? No, you get dirty. You are not pure by your own efforts. Only God can do that. But you are called to keep yourself unstained. When God saved you, he began the work of, the work of sanctifying you until the day that eternity comes. Faith's role is to keep you that way, to bring you along in that process as God is continuing his work in you. So don't go wallowing around with the pigs. And does that mean we don't love people that are in the world? No. Does that mean we don't share Christ with people who are in the world? No. But it sure means we can't get in the mud with them. And to maintain a level of purity that God has brought us, that, that's something only God can do in us. In fact, any of this, every single one of these is stuff that only God can do in us. None of it's stuff we can do on our own. Living our faith requires God's help from start to finish. This morning, we're going to sing a, a song. And during the song of invitation, I, I, I want to invite you to seek God's help. Every single one of us needs it. Just ask Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us to live our faith. Not, not a faith that comes from us. It's a faith that comes from you. But it's a faith that's living and active in us. God, I pray that we would live out our faith by the way that we do things. Whether it's, whether it's how we face trials. Whether it's how we ask for wisdom without doubting. Whether it's uh, uh, what, how we view ourselves and our possessions. Whether it's something like controlling anger. Caring for the needy. In everything that we do, I pray that you would be the one enabling it. You would be the one empowering it. You would be the one who is working in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. God, I pray that these words from James would not just be stale, like crackers that have been sitting out too long, bread that's well past its prime. Father, I pray that these words would be alive in us today, that we would not only love you, but we would serve you. Father, I pray that we would live our faith. Lord, you do the work in us. Some of us, you are calling to come to know your son for the first time, to, to, to know him, to put faith in him, and we've never done that. God, I pray that that call would pierce through the layers of hard-heartedness and go straight to the depths of their soul, that you would call them in a way that is unmistakable and that they would surrender to you. Father, for those who have, surrender. I pray that we would follow you in all of our ways. That we wouldn't lean on our own understandings, but we would trust you and do what you call us. Lord God, help us live our faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.